Morning, church family. While the uh, kids are on their way out, I want to point out that uh, this week, actually, I think maybe even tomorrow, marks five years of ministry at Faith Church for Pastor Aaron. So thank you, Pastor Aaron. Five years of fun, uh, messy chicken, and, uh, and lots of laughs, and I really appreciate you, brother. It's been a joy to get to know you and serve alongside you, so your church family and I are thankful for you uh, serving. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Uh, as uh, he said, it's an exciting day because we've got lots going on. We've already had a, um, a great uh, 9 a.m. topic for many of you who are here for that. Uh, we get to study God's Word together now, as always. Then we got lunch, we got baptisms, uh, lots of exciting things that God's doing. So uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, if you missed it, at 9 a.m., we had a few minutes to dig into a great topic, had a guest speaker here helping us think through uh, where our information comes from, how we can be discerning about what comes in. Uh, you know, he used the examples of news, different news sources, and... Uh, and so we want to be, as followers of Jesus, we want to be people of the Word, right? And that's why we, when we get together on Sunday morning, we study God's Word. We want to be people of the Word. We want to be discerning uh, as we hear things. Uh, we want to interpret the news. This was one of the quotes from this morning. We want to interpret the news with our Bible. Yes, we read the news, but we read our Bibles, and we interpret what we are learning in our world around us and what is true in our world around us. Uh, as we study our Bibles as well. And so uh, uh, the speaker mentioned the five C's, and you'll have to listen to it if you missed it. Uh, we'll, I think we'll have it recorded on our website. You could check it out. But uh, one of the five C's, as we try to discern and critically think about the information that we receive and what is accurate and what is truthful, one of the five C's was credibility. And so when we, uh, as followers of Jesus, and we gather at Faith Church to study God's word, man, one thing that is true is the credibility of this. We are people of the word. This is not fake news. Uh, this is God's word, a truthful historical account that we're studying, the book of Esther, these last few weeks. And, and today and next week, we'll conclude this series in the Bible book called Esther, and so uh, it doesn't get any more credible than being uh, God's very word to us, to shape us and mold us and teach us. So, Father God, would you, as always, be our teacher this morning? God, would you help us to look to you now, to clear our minds of, of distraction and, and busyness and, and any hurts or difficulties that we're having? But God, help us to lift our eyes to you, to hear from you. Uh, would you teach us through your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I will have you, if you want, you can turn to Esther chapter 6. We'll be there in just a minute. But before we, we start in on chapter 6, let's just catch up on where we've been. Because whether you've been with us each week uh, for this series in Esther or, or not, we want to make sure that we're catching the flow of this truthful historical account of what was going on with God's people uh, back when. And so in chapter 3 of Esther, Esther's uncle, uh, uh, sorry, cousin, Esther's cousin, Mordecai, uh, in back in chapter 3, he won't bow down to the king's number two man, to Haman. Haman supposedly deserves this respect, and there's this rule that you're supposed to bow down and pay honor to him, and Mordecai won't do it. And as a result, 
Haman seeks to destroy all of God's people, all the Jews. Because Mordecai, who won't bow down to, bow down to him as a Jew, Haman's overkill response is, I'm going to get the king to kill them all. Chapter 4, Mordecai then says to his, uh, his cousin Esther, hey, this is all going on. God's people are in danger. Maybe it's just a coincidence that you're here with the queen at this time. <laughs> okay, good. A little nervous laughter, maybe an a raised eyebrow or two. Seeing if you're paying attention because we're people of the word. Mordecai says to his niece, it's not, he doesn't say it's a coincidence that you're queen. He says, perhaps it's such a time as this. Perhaps God has you in this position for his purposes, for such a time as this. And so her response to Mordecai is, I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. Why does she say that? Because it's against the law to come before the king uninvited, to appear, even as queen, to appear in the king's court uninvited was illegal. And so she is she is bold and, and taking risks in order to uh, serve God and protect God's people. And so she goes to the king uninvited. Back in chapter 5, which we covered last week, she goes to the king. She is fearfully uncertain of what will happen and just hoping, just hoping that she can gain the king's favor, that she could be used by God to intercede for her people. She goes fearfully trembling against the law, not sure what she's up against, not sure if the king will receive her, just hoping to earn, hoping she's done enough as queen or her reputation is enough to earn the king's favor. And last week we got a little bit of a sigh of relief because the king received her. And not only did he receive her, but he immediately asked what he could do to help. And, and made big, bold promises to do whatever it was she was asking. And so instead of jumping on that opportunity, instead of jumping right on that opportunity and saying to the king, well, my people are in trouble. I need you to save them. I mean, uh, Haman put out this edict that they're all going to get killed. She didn't jump. Esther doesn't jump right to that solution. We, we, we studied last Sunday that she waited on the God, hopefully was in tune to his plan and proceeded more patiently. And uh, her plan, as given to her by God, was instead of jumping to those, that immediate rescue plan, she invited the king to a feast. And at the feast, she invited the king and Haman back to another feast, just kind of earning, kind of, kind of patiently earning time. And in the process, the king is making more bold promises to do whatever she says, to do whatever it is she's asking. So meanwhile... Haman, the second in charge, second to the king, uh, sees Mordecai again, sees Esther's cousin Mordecai again, not bowing down, not paying him honor, and Haman is filled with rage, and he orders, as, as our passage last Sunday completed, uh, Haman has a gallows built 75 feet high, complete overkill, to make a statement and intends to have Mordecai hanged or impaled on the stick. So, 
There's where we pick up the story today. Will Esther be able to convince the king to help? Has she earned the king's favor? Has she done enough? Has she merited the king's favor to to correct the course of action that is going to end up in the slaughter of her people? The king, because of Haman, has has issued this edict that all the Jews can be killed. Basically a genocide. And Esther now has this opportunity with the king. Has she earned his favor? We've been talking a lot in Esther about about the concept of God's providence. Here we'll see it on the screen. God's providence is that while we sometimes don't see God at work, while he sometimes seems to be behind the scenes, while we don't always know what he's up to, we know, we can believe, we can trust that God sees all and knows all and that his hand orchestrates things according to his, his glory, for his glory, and even for our good. And we're going to see that here in Esther today. Because chapter 6 of Esther is, is a case study for Romans 8.28 that tells us that for those that, that trust in God, God works things out according to their good. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Esther chapter 6. Now we're at Esther chapter 6, verse 1. Everybody there? They gave you time? Hopefully we bring our Bibles to church on Sundays. I like to be, we like to be people of the word. We like to have our finger in the text so that we can hear from God. Chapter 6, verse 1. So on that very night, remember what just happened. Haman is building his gallows. He intends to have Mordecai hanged in the morning. Verse 1. On that very night, the king could not sleep. Coincidence? And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Not only does God's sovereignty here um, orchestrate that the king can't sleep, but, but God even orchestrates what King Xerxes or Ahasuerus chooses to do in his insomnia. This is the king. He's got any number of resources, any number of entertainment options at his, at his beck and call. And he, and he orders the book of history, which, okay, maybe if you have insomnia, maybe that's a good idea. It's like some of you download our sermons, so if you have insomnia. Verse 2. So they start reading the history to the king. Verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai, and this story was told earlier in the book of Esther, how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh. Remember the two king's bodyguards, Big Thana and Teresh. They had plotted to kill the king, and Mordecai had thwarted their plot by alerting the king through Esther that these guys were plotting his death. So verse 2 tells us, this story is read back to the king, how they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And so all of a sudden, the king sits up in bed, whoa, This guy saved my, Mordecai saved my life. That seems important. Verse three, and the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for Mordecai. And the king thinks that's not good. Who's gonna save my life next time if I don't reward this guy? This was kind of ancient tradition at the time for kings to reward people that were helpful to them. And I'd say saving his life was somewhat helpful to him. 
So he's thinking, I got to do something about this. And so God's providence, or was it a coincidence? God's providence is orchestrating this, waking up the king, reminding him about how Mordecai helped him. And not only that, but God is behind the scenes. We don't see the name of God mentioned in the book of Esther. And Esther, the main character of this story, is absent from this chapter. But is God at work? Because let's see what other people and timing and places he arrange, arranges. Verse 4. The king said, okay, so i got to solve this problem. i got to reward Mordecai. Nothing's been done to him. I'm, i got to ask for some advice about what I should do. So the king says, verse 4, who is in the court? Are any of my advisors here? He's thinking, I need someone to tell me what to do. Because we've seen in the rest of Esther, that's pretty much the way the king operates. He asks his smart people, advisors, to give him direction. So he's thinking, who's in the court? Now Haman had just happened by coincidence to enter the outer court. Does it say that in your word? Nope. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king. (laughs) If this wasn't life and death, it's almost comical in its irony. Haman is rolling into the king's court, it says, verse 4, To talk to the king about what? About having Mordecai hanged. The king just woke up stoked and excited about Mordecai, and here here comes his number two man ready to kill him. Verse 5. And the king's young man, a young man told him, Haman is there in the court. And the king said, okay, let Haman come in. Verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? The king's all fired up. He's just remembered how someone saved his life. He's excited about Mordecai. He doesn't say Mordecai's name right here, though. Notice that. Haman walks in. He says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman says to himself, oh, this is awesome. This is my chance. Who else would the king want to honor except me? That's what the king's been doing all along in this story is elevating Haman. Haman getting all the kudos. Haman, you have to bow down and honor him. He has power. Haman has wealth. And now the king says, what should I do to honor the man I delight to honor? And and so Haman's thinking, oh, here's my chance. I'm just going to prescribe for myself what I want. Right? Verse 7. So Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, (laughs) thank you very much, (laughs) let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man. Let one of the king's nobles dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them, let that official, lead them around on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman sure took full advantage of that opportunity, didn't he? At least he thought so. 
Who else would the king want to honor except me? So let me just prescribe what I would like done for me. We talked last week about uh, Haman's downfall uh, being his idol of, of public, uh, public recognition. Here he is, a powerful man, a wealthy man, and yet it's not enough. And he's kind of put in place of God in his life. He's put this idol of public recognition. And so that's what he asks the king for. Before we continue the story, do we relate to Haman at all in this situation? Have we ever jumped to conclusions? Have we ever inserted ourselves as the main character? Have we ever sought better for ourselves instead of others? If we're not careful, we look out for number one rather than putting the needs of others ahead of our own. Um, and I just have had lots of things come into my mind in recent weeks and lots of examples uh, in our church family that I'm excited about. I, I think that in a few weeks, when we add a, a second worship gathering on Sunday morning, when we begin gathering in here to celebrate together both at 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m., that starts on September 16th, uh, we have this opportunity when we go to two worship gatherings. And we're going to have an opportunity in the coming weeks or months to welcome uh, a new uh, worship pastor. And, uh, and I, I have just been thrilled with some conversations I've been having. I've been so encouraged. I've been blessed. I've, I've received some notes from some of you. I've talked with some of you. And um, it is so rich to recognize together that a church family exists, not for us, not for our own preferences, but so that Jesus gets the glory and so that more people find new life in Jesus that we have found. And hopefully you are finding continued transformation into the likeness of Jesus. And we want to share that with others. And so in these interactions I've had lately and, and in these notes I've received and in some of these conversations I've been having, it's just been a huge blessing to me. It really has to observe uh, the spiritual maturity in our church family to to recognize the big picture of what God is doing, even if some of what's happening isn't always our first choice. I so appreciate you. I sincerely am, am thanking you for the understanding that I have seen as we've been in a season, you know, long before my arrival even, kind of a season of transition and change, right? Big things in a church with a great and long history. Lots of, of changing things. And I have uh, just been blessed and thankful to see your understanding and your desire to lift your eyes to our great God and see what is he up to in this. Because I'll tell you, on behalf of me and the other leaders, staff, and elders, we're not perfect. And there's no one right way to do any, you know, ministry. And there's not one right way to do church family uh, but I'll tell you one thing, we are submitting ourselves to the Lord and, and, and doing our best to ask God to show us what does it look like for Faith Church in 2018 and moving forward, what does it look like for us to be as effective as possible at making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, to help people follow Jesus in such a way that they help other people follow Jesus and people find new life in him. And so... Um, it's so important to remember that church is not a building. Church is not this building. 
Church is not a program, a one-hour gathering on Sunday mornings. These are tools, our building and our gathering are, are good opportunities to grow in Jesus and to encourage one another and to learn. But the church is not a building and the church is not a program. The church is God's people joining in what God is doing in the world. And what God is doing in the world is proclaiming the greatness of Jesus so that people would find salvation in him and transformation in him. And so the church is not a building or a one-hour gathering. The church is God's people together, gathered on mission, looking to him for how to do it. God, how can we be more effective in reaching our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers and our fellow students who are far from Jesus. That's what God is up to, and the, our church family exists to join in that mission, to be conduits of God's love, to be proclaimers of the good news of Jesus. And so, in kind of simple, practical ways, I've, I've heard and seen us embrace the idea of, of adding a second worship service so that we can make room for any and all who want to come and hear about Jesus. How we're going to let guests sit in our seats because our church family isn't about us. It's about those who need Jesus. And so it's been a blessing for me to see that um, from you as you've gained the vision, as you've seen what God is up to and, and, and desired to be a part and as we welcome a new worship pastor, um, we're going to have the opportunity to, um, to, to look to the future, to ask God to make sure that Faith Church is a place for our kids and our grandkids to hear about Jesus and to grow in Jesus. And so, uh, with, by the grace of God, we'll ask that he help us continue to reach as many as we can with the good news of Jesus. So thanks for being part of our church family. It's an exciting time in our history. And, uh, and while Haman jumps to conclusions and inserts himself for the glory, it's humbling and thankful to be part of a church family where we desire, decide, desire to set ourselves aside and put the needs of others first for the glory of Jesus. All right, finger in the text, verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, hurry. So remember now, what, what's Haman thinking? He's thinking the king's about to honor him, right? Okay, verse 10. Now the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, just as you have said, and do all of that to Mordecai the Jew. What is Haman's stomach doing? Do all of that for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave, the king says, leave out nothing you have mentioned. Your little prescription about how to honor a man, it was perfect. Do that. That's what the king says. So Haman took the robes. Can you just picture Haman? So he took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai. And he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before Mordecai, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman, uh, one of the 
one of the commentators I studied this week said that Haman's own words came back to haunt him. Haman's dream day turned into his worst nightmare. So that's the way things go down in the kingdom of Ahasuerus or Xerxes. That's the way that things happen. We've seen who King Xerxes chose to honor. But um, one thing that's been helpful through our study of the book of Esther, I think, is to compare the kingdom of Ahasuerus, the way an earthly king operates, the way a a pagan, non-Christian kingdom operates, and compare and contrast that to the kingdom of our great God, the true king. And so it's been helpful. We've done that along the way these last few weeks, and we can do that again now because while Xerxes chose to honor Mordecai, I want us to ask this question. Who does the true king, our great God, our heavenly father, who does he delight to honor? And among many places in God's word, Philippians 2, it's on the screen, I think this tells us who our great God, the true king, delights to honor. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The true king desires, delights to honor Jesus. Why? Why did God delight to exalt Jesus? Haman wanted to exalt himself. Haman got power and wealth and still wanted more. Haman wanted public recognition. Haman wanted it to be all about Haman. Why does our true king delight to honor Jesus? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus, his son, came to be with us, and the Bible tells us that the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to, and to give his as a ransom for many. Haman was all about Haman, but our great God delights to honor Jesus because Jesus came to rescue you. He came not to be a king and get robes and a crown and ride on the king's horse, But the Bible says Jesus came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a way to rescue many. The good news, the gospel is the good news that God rescues sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel that is at the heart of our church family, that is at the heart of the message we proclaim, that is at the heart of of this Word from God. The gospel is that good news that because Jesus lived the life that we can't, died the death that we deserved, and was raised victoriously from the dead, you and I can have life too. That's the gospel. And the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. Because no matter how many times you've heard that story, the gospel has continued implications in our lives. Not just back when we first became a Christian, but the good news of Jesus has implications in our now and in our future. And so um, our next teaching series, we're going to wrap up the book of Esther next uh, next Sunday. And our next teaching series is going to be 10 weeks through the Bible's book called Galatians. And the series we are entitling the series, This Changes Everything. 
Because I want this to sink in, friends. I want us to realize that the gospel is not old news, that the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is not something that you just needed to know once. It's something that impacts our every day. And it's something that God wants to stir in us and make us familiar with and give us, uh, as we're going to talk about this fall, give us a gospel fluency, an ability to, to know and articulate and share the gospel in natural and everyday ways. And so that's what we're going to be doing this fall, starting in mid-September. We're going to be teaching through the book of Galatians. And then we're going to be encouraging you because I think it's an exciting opportunity for us as a church family, as God's people on mission with him, to be all in on the same thing together. So while we study through Galatians on Sunday mornings, we're going to invite you and really encourage you all to be part of a small group each week for 10 weeks. For, for a couple reasons, a couple simple reasons. We'd love you to just be connected with others with our, in our church family. Some of you are already doing that and enjoying the blessings of being connected with others and having church family. And some of you, we would love for you to experience that. To be connected with others in our church family. And then the other thing we're really going to do simply with that time for 10 weeks as we gather in homes is we're just going to discuss a few simple discussion questions to think about a concept from the previous Sunday's sermon and did I understand it? What does that mean? And what does that look like in my life? How could I maybe grow in this area? How could I implement this uh, idea from the sermon? So that's what we're going to be doing together. Uh, there's, info, there's a handout in your bulletin this morning. You can read it later for more details of what to look forward to with the fall. Uh, we're excited and looking forward to what God is going to do uh, as we all kind of grow together considering some of the same things at the same time. So that's going to be a lot of fun. All right, let's, let's uh, get back to in the text here. Finger in the text, verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. This is after Haman pranced him around town. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman, and Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, we'll read it here, but I was just thinking back to last chapter. The last time he came to his friends and his wife, they just kind of told him what he wanted to hear. And now he comes back in shame and he's telling them what's going on and here's their response. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. Coincidence? God working. You will not overcome him, but, he will sh uh, but you will surely fall before him. Uh, one of the smart people I was reading and studying this passage wrote this, we see the invisible hand of God in this chapter changing the course of history. And, and he writes, invisible hand of God. Maybe that's a little bit of an oxymoron, right? Invisible hand of God. But he says this, if we look out through a window, we can neither see nor feel the wind blowing. But the bending of the trees tells its own story, doesn't it? That's what reading the book of Esther is like. We may not see written the word God. We may not 
understand his behind-the-scenes ways, but the trees are bending, and the course of history has changed according to God's good purposes. And the best thing about those last couple of verses is even the pagans realize it. Even these, these anti-God people go, you know what? You're, you're on the losing end here, buddy. Even the pagans can see that God is at work and they acknowledge that his purposes will prevail. All right, now chapter 7, fairly quickly here. Famous last words from Derek, right? Fairly quickly. Okay, Esther chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to a feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again, this is multiple times, says to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? Why do you keep throwing us these dinner parties? What is it I can do for you? What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, he says. And, and what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Uh, God, uh, God-given patient strategy employed by Esther has now uh, resulted in the king pledging publicly three times that he'll grant her request. So that's going to work out well. Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor, remember how she had to come before him, not sure if she'd be killed because it was illegal to come before the king, perhaps uncertain, taking her life into her own hands. If I perish, I perish. This is how she had to approach the king. And here she is saying, If I have found favor, if I have done enough, if I have merited your goodwill, And if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. So she's saying, grant me my life, save my life, save the life of my people. Verse 4, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. So Esther really implicates herself. You know, she she had previously been hiding her identity as Jewish. And now she puts herself right in the same predicament as her people. She says, King, if if I have found favor with you, may I be spared and my people be spared. If I have found favor, and she lets him know, I and my people are set to be destroyed. And she doesn't yet mention which people she's talking about. But of course, Haman hadn't mentioned which people either. And the king just went with the edict to have them slaughtered. Verse 4 continues, If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. I would have kept to myself, because our affliction is not to be compared with the, with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Because, of course, Haman was right there with him. At the banquet. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. I mentioned earlier that Esther, the main character, so to speak, not a, not a fictional character, of course, but kind of the main person of, our, of this Bible book, right? 
was absent from chapter 6. And yet in chapter 6, we still noted how, how clearly God was working. And now here, in, verse, uh, in chapter 7, we see Esther involved. This opportunity that God's given Esther to be bold for her, for him, I'm sorry, for his purposes. So here we've seen that in these previous verses we just read that Esther has this opportunity to courageously stand up for God's people. So is it, is it God orchestrating and, and, and in control of all things? Yes. Do his people play a part? Yes. It doesn't, just because God uh, was moving behind the scenes and, and the trees were bending, as, as, you, as we will, behind the, even though God was clearly at work in, verse six, in chapter 6, and we didn't really see you know, his people doing much about it, that doesn't mean that our actions are not important. Esther here did stand up for her people. God's sovereign purpose works through his servants, his people. But God's purposes are not dependent on our obedience. He wants to use you. He wants to work through you. Perhaps you live in Dallas in 2018 with the friends you have and the family you have for such a time as this. For God to work in you and through you, for you you to speak boldly for the glory of Jesus. But God's purposes will prevail and they don't depend on my obedience and your obedience. Let's read the rest of the passage that we're covering today. Verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Haman sees the writing on the wall, knows that he's in trouble, is throwing himself before Esther, begging for his life. Verse 8, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, just as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king uses this as an opportunity, uses this as an excuse. He already wants to to get, uh, to, to, he's already determined that he's against Haman, and now here's his opportunity. And the king says, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as that word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai. Oh, conveniently, the gallows were built. That guy, Mordecai, saved the king's life. But that gallows that Haman built is sitting outside ready. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. As we close, I want us to just again consider the differences between the kingdom of Xerxes and the kingdom of our great God. Let's let's think about this. We've seen how Xerxes is ruthless and evil and does what he wants. We've seen people tremble before him, not knowing if they could approach him. And then let's compare and contrast that to the kingdom of our great God. 
it was a frightening uh, prospect to approach King Xerxes. But our appearing before the true king, our appearing before the true king, our good God, our heavenly father, is not a matter of, if I have found favor in your sight, Esther approached King Xerxes with words like, if I have found favor, if I've done enough, if you like me enough, would you help me out? She had to approach King Xerxes with trembling and fear and uncertainty at risk of death. But our great God is a loving heavenly father, and it's not a matter of if I have found favor in your sight because we need to be reminded that we cannot earn. Our actions don't merit God's love. The things we do or say don't add up to our salvation. The gospel is the good news that God rescues sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's, so for us followers of Jesus, for followers of Jesus, it's not, have I earned enough Favor, it's Jesus has earned favor on our behalf. Look at the verse on the screen, Ephesians 2.13. But now, those of us in Christ Jesus, followers of Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. His perfect life, his willing death make it possible for us to approach the throne of God and find favor. We didn't have to hope for favor from the king. We didn't have to earn favor from the king. Our words and our actions don't merit his grace and his love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. That's how much God loves us. While we were still stuck in sin, Jesus died so that we too could have new life in him. Father God, we look to you this morning. We need you and we gather together to worship you. So we recognize as your word teaches that you are God. And there is no other. You, true king, declare the end from the beginning. You are the one that knows the difference between the ancient times and things yet to come. And so, God, as your word proclaims, we trust that your counsel will stand and that your purposes will be accomplished. So you are great and worthy of our worship. We confess to you that we fall short, we fail, we rebel against you. We cannot find favor on our own. So we thank you for rescuing us through your son. We thank you, God, that you have demonstrated your great love to us by sending your son. That while we were deserving of death in Jesus, we have new life. Help us, God, this morning to put our trust in you alone not in our own efforts, not in our own merit, not in our earning. 
Help us to trust, entrust ourselves to you, to receive from you the free gift of salvation, your gift of grace. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for new life in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.